Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 77, air date November 14th, 2015. So, so you bring up a great point of, and I, and I open this up to the panel, and, and please feel free to start off, Mark. How do we get pharma to publish their failed trials, their failed drugs? How do we get... Um, this information that can be repurposed, learning from failures to repurpose a drug in a more specific way using perhaps a systems approach, a crowdsourcing approach. So I invite you to you know, open up the discussion about uh, can we do better in terms of uh, using information from pharma that we just, we just don't hear about, having better access. Yeah. So um, I'm very enthusiastic about getting clear about data transparency. Now, there are risks, and some people are scared of the risks that they, they run away. I don't think we should, because if you look at what's right, you know it's the right thing to do is to share data. That's the principle. Everyone in this room would say the principle is right, we share the data. The challenge is sometimes in the how do you get there. How do you move from principle into practice? Now, there are hurdles. We've come across hurdles in terms of you need to protect um, security. But you can do that with various redactions. You can anonymize the data. What's interesting is when we've tried to publish some of our negative data, the journals have not been so keen. So we actually had an IL-18. And I, an IL-18 sounds great because it's associated with lots of um, diseases. My background's diabetes, and I was really interested in whether inhibiting IL-18 with a monoclonal antibody would um, help with diabetes. We did the study, nice experimental study, 20 patients, type 2 diabetes, gave our IL-18 monoclonal antibody, no effect. At the moment, I've written to four journals to try and get this negative study. Oh, well, nice study, small study, shame about the negative results. <laughs> now, what's really is sad is there may be other people wasting time and money trying to find what IL-18 may do. So what we've done to do that is we publish all our results on our clinical trials website. So although it may be difficult to get in the journals, we make sure our positive and our negative studies are published within time frame on our clinical trials. That's a start, but I think it's better to get in yeah. peer-reviewed so, journals. So maybe we need an open source journal, JMPR, the Journal of Negative Pharma Results. <laughs> yeah. Just put it out there. I, I would support that. Yeah, okay, well, we're gonna get back to it. Um, any other? Comments on this you'd like to make? I'm repurposing drugs. I know this is in your um, uh, company that you're working with, Shiva, and um, also the idea of crowdsourcing and uh, more. Yeah, I have, a, I have a couple of comments around that, particularly related to what was yeah. said over there. And feel what, free to. What, one is if you have questions um, too. on this whole peer review journal piece. I, I'm not sure if people know who Randy Sheckman is. Anyone? Yeah. Well, Randy. A few days after he got the Nobel Prize, he wrote a very scathing article in The Guardian, essentially saying the entire impact factor model is completely screwed up. That it's essentially incentivizing a completely bad behavior, which is citations. And, and he said he will never publish again in Nature, Cell, or Science. Now, it's a very interesting thing. For, so he, and he also admits, you know, I, I waited until I got the Nobel Prize to do this. <laughs> but the point is that it did, you know, we're talking about it here. So I think it's an important thing on what are, what is the incentive here? Mm -hmm. What are we really driving? 
Is there such a great value to be in nature and science? I mean, Einstein, as we all know, never published in a peer review journal. In fact, he was against peer review because he said, how can your peers review anything that's innovative? So there's an interesting point here on where have we gotten on all these assumptions, I think, to what you said, we have to do out-of-the-box thinking. The approach that we started taking was starting around 2003 when the Genome Project ended, to, to your point on the key three things, I think, uncertainty, a systems approach, and the need for team science. When we looked at biology, biology is very fiefdom-based because of the nature, it's experimental. There is no ab initio laws. So we said, could we create a collaboratory? Interesting term, right? Could you take bio biological information, have the, extract the molecular pathways, couple the quantitative uh, results of that in an environment where you know that not one person could solve these very complex biological phenomena, but you need a collaboration to do that. And that's the basis of creating Cytosolve. And we took that environment and we applied it to pancreatic cancer. And we went from end to end in a period of, I think, two years, where we looked at all the known pathways. We know there are holes, we know there are uncertainties, but we were able to do a, a decent modeling. We went through the 262 drugs out there for cancer. We found a two-combination drug, small seven-person company in Cambridge. We applied for an IND. When we applied, the FDA actually contacted us back and said, what you're doing is what Janet Woodcock wants to do in the 23rd century. We, we got the quote-unquote patent for it. And now we have a relation with MD Anderson. We're doing a joint venture, all done within a period of two years. So this notion of a collaboratory and team science approach, I mean, it is the way we're going to get cures faster. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But I think the big issue is career development. I mean, how do we make sure, you know, at UCSF, at Harvard, that, that folks uh, uh, do get promoted along the way if they haven't published papers in high-impact journals? This is a real problem. So, so one of the models is, why is there tenure? I mean, I'm going to throw out some radical questions. <laughs> it's, it's a feudal form that goes back 600 years. So is there a better, better model where you keep the university as a circulating model, where you come in, you work, you go to industry, industry people come in? I mean, it's sort of a radical notion. Yeah. The whole foundations here need to be relooked at. Why is there tenure? Who is anointing who? This is an old priesthood model. Does it really support us in the modern world where, there, where some people may not be able to be part of these clubs? and where does science actually get done? And the collaboration model, I think technology can help instantiate this. And otherwise, I think we're just gonna be going around tweaking little pieces and we never really get to the real core of the problems that need to be addressed. Should we, should we do away with tenure and anointing? I mean, why do you need tenure? It's, a, it's, it's an interesting question. I think it'd be a great, a great question to ask. I, bureaucracies in general, tenure is a great example because it's so, so focused on the way that academia has operated, as you said, for hundreds of years. But, but bureaucracies in general are very conservative forces. They, are, they, they in, in many ways, you could, you could argue that they exist to preserve themselves. And so, so a conservative force like that in a, in a dynamic endeavor such as ours holds back the endeavor. And we need to acknowledge that and look for way, ways, maybe the tenure system is one, certainly the first and last author uh, addiction that we have in, in biology for credit on, on papers, that whole reward system of publishing in single word journals, um, uh, all of that uh, are things that we need to re-examine because they're actually holding back the endeavor. Um, I just wanted to comment on something that Murray said, that that the, the description you gave 
of actually taking a narrower look at the patient cohort that was going to be benefit really is, is at the heart of, is one aspect of, at the heart of precision medicine, one of the primary topics here at this meeting, and, and of which I've been involved in for a long time. And, and, and I think that that is essential, that, that in many ways we should be saying to um, uh, the, patient, the patient advocacy groups who work in rare diseases that they, they've been ahead of the game. And that at the end of the day, all diseases are going to be rare diseases because we will have parameters and variables that are affecting all the way down to the level of each individual, mm -hmm. the, their, their, their capacity for be, being able to do this. So, so driving, you know, you know being, you, having the insight to be able to, to reduce the size of the cohort to a, a, gr a group that actually will be helped is to be the difference between having a drug and not having a drug. Right. Um, and I would argue that, that Blockbuster drugs are not drugs that work on everybody. They're drugs that don't kill anybody. And so everybody can take them for the rest of their lives, and some people will be helped and some people will not. We've got to stop that. It's, it's one of the drivers of healthcare costs that we need to change. And so being, having that kind of recognition, that understanding mechanisms, which is the principle of precision medicine. Actually, Francis Collins, I, I, I chaired the Board of Life Sciences for the National Academy, when Francis wrote a letter asking, to, asking us to do a study that would ask what would be the outcomes of changing the classification of disease from organs and symptoms to mechanisms. That turned into the precision medicine report that we then sanctioned right. and staffed um, and it was a part of that study. So, so, so understanding the mechanisms, the better we can understand the mechanisms and the, and the various variables that come into play with them, then the better our ability to be able to design drugs that work for, that really do work for a set of people that we also have defined. So do we need a new nosology of disease yeah. based on genes, yeah. biomarkers, pathways, and cause? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I'll do another example. So I think if you stick to traditional diseases, you'll then slow down the drug development process. So one of the compounds, BRAF-MEK inhibitor, we know it worked with people with a genetic defect um, for melanoma. And then you say, well, actually, people with other cancers also have that. So historically, the old way of doing drug development, where you do it in melanoma, then you would do it in squamous cell carcinoma, then you would do it in the other cancer, rather than saying, actually, why don't we do a clinical trial with all the people who have the defect, compare it to people who don't, and then you get the drug approved from the target as opposed to the disease. So as scientists and industry, Regulators also need to be on board on this because we're challenging the paradigm of um, diseases. Yep. Um, getting back to this, this team idea, the idea of collaborative team science, cross-discipline, you know, I, I want to bring up the topic of the CV. Do we need a different CV? We've already seen the NIH change the biosketch. Mm -hmm. It used to be you just list your references and they're like the gold, the gold award, the silver, the bronze, the honorable mention papers. And there's nothing about who you are. Now the NIH has us do sections. Here's a, here's a part of my career where I studied this, here are representative papers, right? So it's becoming more a narrative of who you really are. If we get deeply into this team science, and I, I'll ask both, both you, Keith, and Jessica, um, should we think about CVs where there is a team, there is a consortium paper, but then underneath that reference, you write a narrative on exactly what, what you contributed and what you did rather than just leave it to uh, where you might be listed in the consortium list? Yeah, yes. some journals are moving in this direction, some institutions are. We're certainly trying to revise our 
reward system in that regard. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be essential if we're going to have teams that are effective. I think this whole notion of first and last author and the order yeah. whether you're second or third it's or fourth author it's more anointment, is, right? <laughs> is, is, well, it's damaging. And, and yeah. so I, w I think that the order of the authors should be something that's unreal, you know, should be, yeah. my proposal would, would be reverse height. <laughs> okay. Just as a random, uh, but 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 you know something that's trouble. not related to the quality, so so that the kind of conventional easy thing that people do to promotion yeah. committees do to actually avoid having to read the papers and find out what's in them yeah. uh, is a way to ascribe credit. We're going to make that go away. Keith, you know, I, I tell you, one of the most profound comments that were that was made to me when I was a young aspiring scientist. Um, I was at a at a fundraising dinner and, and the, the person that was the head of Time One at the time just happened to sort of casually make a comment to me and the comment was, it's amazing what you can get accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit for it. <laughs> and it was like you know, a light came on and I just sort of changed the way that I thought about things and it just opened up the possibilities to not care where I was, you know, in the order of the paper and, you know, who got credit for this and, and my productivity just flourished because I didn't, I didn't really care if I was on the paper or not or whether I was lead author or senior author. And one of the things that is most challenging to me now when I actually oversee a group of researchers is trying to get that con concept across to them because to them it's like live or die, yeah. where they're on the paper, where they get published, where they get the grant, where they get credit. And Big Pharma, that's not the incentive. The incentive isn't where you're on the paper, the incentive is getting the drug commercialized you know, in that time frame. So we also get what we incentivize. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's an interesting observation is that people go into science not for the money, right? I mean, you're not gonna, you go into investment banking or yep. you know, start your own business because we know as scientists we're not gonna make a lot of money. But most scientists believe that they're gonna get the Nobel Prize, <laughs> right? But that's not the reality. Right, which is so, also outdated. Yeah, and so if you, and you know, I look at, I, I look at you know, the roster of tenure professors at our great academic institutions, and then you sit back and say, well, what actually have they contributed right. to the world, right? What is the big sort of aha discovery? And for most of them, not much, right? They got the great CVs and the great productivity. So we just need to sort of rethink what our values are for our scientists. We need to rethink what our incentives are. We need to rethink what drives us and what motivates us and to, to reconfigure this, because I think it, it frees us to do things that we're not free to do currently in the current paradigm. Um, so, um, you know, I think, you know, meetings and groups like Faster Cures, those are the kind of things that people like you guys need to be thinking about, right, in terms of our next generation of scientists. We need to, you know, change the incentives upside right. down to free us into really doing things that we currently don't do. And that's why I kind of propose this concept of crowdsourcing. I don't know yeah. how that would work because, yeah. right, but the ability to sort of put our concepts out there, have them vetted, understand that, yeah, that will work, that's great, that won't work. But um, until we get over this concept of, God, I'm gonna get the Nobel Prize if 
and I can't share this until I am, it's clear that I yeah. am the first author of my science paper. And, and the, and the know, whole the whole idea of the Nobel. I mean, how do you today pick just three people yeah. Yeah. for anything we're doing? I mean, my most productive research today is with consortia. Right. I work with uh, with Faster Cures on the Alzheimer's Consortium. I work with Cure Alzheimer's Fund on a different consortia for yeah. g uh, genome sequencing for for coming up with therapies. I mean, and we all agree it's going to be alphabetical order. Yeah. Uh, listing, and some people in, in some of the consortia I'm in say, well, I'm a young person, I need credit for my paper. Yeah. That's why I think we do, do we need to revise how we present ourselves on CVs now going forward so we can have a more productive team mm -hmm. type of effort, consortium effort, but people, young people coming up don't suffer for it. Jessica. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree that we are driven by the wrong motivations in a lot of cases. Um, but, uh, you know, as young scientists, not all of whom are going to have the opportunity to keep doing science, they are going to be evaluated by some metric. And um, so I, you know, I hate to see this happen, but I am optimistic that perhaps we could open up the definition of what it means to contribute to science and to contribute to these things that are so important for finding cures, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is maybe we, it's not just authorship, but uh, being a member of a community, producing code, producing things that are not, things that traditionally fit on an NIH biosketch. Can we open up that, um, that, that metric a little bit and, and open up what we acknowledge as contributions to science? Um, and, uh, and of course, this gets to the question of peer review. Um, how, you know, must everything be peer reviewed to the same standards of uh, searching for impact, or is it a question of evaluating just on uh, the validity? Where should our determination of what is impactful science come? Um, yeah. Mario, just yeah. Can I pick up about the career development? Because I think sometimes people think it's either or. Yeah. So I moved from academia to pharma, and I tell you what, it was liberating, not worrying about you know how many um, publications I had. But people then said to me, oh, you've moved there as if it was impossible for me to move back. And I think in the future, we've got to be realizing that, um, you know, you shouldn't just get this, then get to this position, get to that position. Actually, you can go sideways, different directions, because you, you learn more if you see things from a different point of view. And I think people should be moving between academia, pharma, business. They'll... Um, widen their horizons, so personally they'll, they'll feel um, they're achieving things as they widen, but also society will achieve more if we do that. So I still don't see enough movement. I sometimes see movement to pharma. I don't see it back. Yeah. I see p some people scared to come to pharma. When you think of career development, I think we should be thinking about programs, two or three year programs that allow people to go, to get the experience they're lacking, to maybe go back if they want to. So fellowships and pharma, fellowships yeah. and entrepreneurship. So we do lots of fellowships and we do yeah. a three year fellowship where people come and they can learn different aspects. And someone said to me, well, um, I want to go back. And I said, well, you'll go back with something else. So sometimes people don't necessarily think they have to come to a company and stay. It's actually beneficial if they go back to um, their universities. And I think the, the freeing up for people to try different things will enhance. Well, I, wanna, I want to have enough time for Q&A, and we've got about 12 minutes left. So why don't we open it up, if it's okay, to questions. We'll touch on more of these themes, please. Hi, Shami Pai-Glass, and I wanted to comment on the last speech. So I came from not device and then went into device. And I saw the same thing where there's a huge barrier to go back into academics. 
and in fact, you're sort of looked upon as you've gone to the evil empire <laughs> and you can no longer go back. And yeah. so forget that I spent forever in medical school, but I can no longer go back. So what I would say to both the senior people on the panel and the one junior person on the panel is how do we build that pathway for you and your peers so you know this is a viable opportunity? And then to the senior members of the panel who run departments, how do we allow those people back in? Because there's different metrics that are going to be involved. Uh, I, if I may comment briefly, uh, these uh, short-term fellowships, relatively short-term fellowships, or uh, you could imagine internship programs um, that enables uh, young people to get a, a, a taste of what is outside are so vital. Um, and I, I think there's a little bit of a conflict of interest in funding graduate students and postdocs off of research grants where they are in some senses obligated to do uh, one thing as opposed to exploring these other these other areas. So I, I see the, that there's so many different ways of, of promoting these kinds of activities, but we may need to broaden the model a bit. Yeah, yeah I really agree with that completely. And, and, and I, you could, we could actually take a step back further and, and point out that, that, I think someone already said this, that every scientist or every trainee in science goes into science because of this notion of making a great discovery. Discovery is a great driver. Little kids who are exposed to science are really fascinated and interesting, interested. And we've taken one of our scientific endeavor, has managed somehow to take one of the most compelling, exciting human endeavors and make it scary and awful. And so it wasn't easy, but we did it. Right? <laughs> and, and so we've got to go back to, I think, first principles of asking, how do we preserve and nurture uh, this, dis this notion of discovery uh, in our trainees. Um, and, and if we can do, and, and it's going to require a substantial culture change in, the, in our reward systems, um, uh, the way that we perceive uh, what is success, uh, destigmatizing failure so that people can take, so it's a good thing to try out bold ideas. Now, all of that's gone away. That's what makes students go, makes kids want to go into science. Yeah. And we've drilled it out of them all the way through. So, uh, so fundamental changes of that sort are really called for. I think to your question, you know, I had a personal experience when I came back at the age of 42 back into MIT to do my PhD. I had to actually, my advisor said, you need to dress differently. Don't talk about what you did in business <laughs> because there was a lot of threats. You know, so I had to completely change how I configured myself, not talk, and I'd been in, in and out of MIT, you know, did seven companies. So I think many of the professors need to actually go out. It's not the fellowships one way, bi-directionally. People actually need to maybe spend two years in industry. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not just the trainees, it's the cultural Train, attitude. Faculty people as thinking well. that they're different because yeah. they're in the lab and they're doing some ivory tower work, and the people out in industry are sort of, you know, they've sort of, like you said, sold themselves to the devil. So it needs to be bi-directional. Yeah, we need you to do one of your symposia for faculty now, <laughs> not just for young people. Yeah, the faculty yeah. need, yeah. yeah. Questions? This also needs to be with clinicians, because you used to be Definitely. able to be a clinician scientist, and now, really, you can, and there's all these older clinicians who um, have been around and have some really good ideas, but they don't know any of the technology of how to figure it out, and maybe we should have a pairing of a young scientist that knows all the new approaches with old clinicians who are, who are going to live for a while yet and, and have some good ideas from their observations. Because they, there's, we're losing a lot, of, um, a, a lot of knowledge and experience um, by not using them. And you really can't, 
you know, go back into the lab the way you, you used to be able to have an idea, go to the lab and go back out again. Those days are long gone. So instead of a big brother, a big sister program, a young brother, a young sister program. A young brother, young science. sister program, yeah. yeah you know, it's, it's, these are great ideas. In fact, at Mass General, we're, we're doing a lot of this now of pairing up young researchers with uh, older clinicians to, to achieve exactly that, and I think that's a great idea. Other can questions? I, can I pick up on that? Yes, I go ahead. The other thing is implying that that individual has to change. But what you need to do is capture their clinical idea and get them seated with the right people to translate that idea into medicine or whatever. And I think sometimes what we do is we try and load everything on one or two people rather than the whole point of collaboration is bringing all the different skill sets together. Questions? Go ahead. Yeah. Can you just wait for the, the mic will be right here? Thank you. Does anyone on the panel see the real problem between collusion of the press and big business, where we don't have freedom of the press anymore? We depend on the alternative press to get our message out, no matter what it is, if it's not in agreement with the powers that be. Uh, Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning author, who left the New York Times because of this reason, and he said, during the time I was there, the unwritten credo at the New York Times was, do not significantly alienate those on whom we depend for access or money. You can alienate them sometimes, but like any good reporter, when you are hammering against a particular entity of power, then you become a headache within the newsroom. And the closer physically that newsroom is to those centers of power, the less you can say. Yeah, so, I, I think it raises a really important point, because the press can often influence what gets funded. And, and programs live and die based on whether you're, you get approval from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, even in academia. Huge, yeah. Right. And there's another uh, thing that Chris Hedges brought up that's greatly disturbing. And I don't really know. I grew up in Newark, so I did know this. But I want to share this with everybody because I think it's so important. Yeah. Uh, Ramparts Magazine was an alternative magazine. And it was one of the few, maybe the only, that would cover the negative aspects of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. If anybody remembers the napalm picture of the, yeah. the girl running naked, that was published in Ramparts as a photo essay. And mm -hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King was in an airport with Ralph Abernathy, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church. And Dr. King was eating, and he pushed his plate away. And Pastor Abernathy said, what's the matter? Is your food not good? He said, nothing will ever taste good again until I speak out about this atrocity. That led to his speech on April 4th at Riverside Baptist Church denouncing the war. And that led to his FBI security detail being taken away. And yeah. April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was assassinated. Okay, so we thank you very much for that, for that insight. And that's very important. We have only 30 seconds uh, left. And um, we can either do a lightning round of final statements, but I think we've heard a lot from all of us. So why don't we take one last burning question? Uh, who, I don't want to have to pick. <laughs> Fight it out. Uh, good, good. Who has a short question? Okay. Good, yeah, good. Thank you so much. Um, uh, my name is Elena Kustova, and I am from National Institutes of Health. 
Um, I want to ask you a question. If uh, you believe um, the model of science that we are currently practicing... Please make it short because we're completely okay. out of time. Just okay. five so seconds. So what do you think about the model of American science? Do you believe it, it contributes in any way to the problems that we are experiencing? I'm talking about Bush model in which uh, we separate basic science and up, uh, applied science. Right. So I think that's a whole other panel uh, discussion, but a very important one. And I think um, we're out of time, but that's a great comment to, you know, to, to, to leave on. Of, again, the idea of we've heard a lot about how to bridge the gap between basic translational clinical science, between pharma and academia, train scientists today for a more collaborative team approach. And so I thank all of our panelists for your wonderful insights. Thank you all for your attention and for your questions. <laughs>